Hey, y'all. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where you'd be listening to a somewhat silly cold open focused on some particularly convoluted bit of continuity. But this month, we're doing something a little different. So, on Monday, March 28th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed HB 1557, the notorious Don't Say Gay Bill, into law. In addition to adding to an already unprecedented wave of legislation targeting trans youth, HB 1557 cuts queer and trans kids off from education, resources, and support, with potentially deadly consequences. Florida may be America's favorite trash fire, but we are not willing to give up on our home state, and we're definitely not willing to give up on the queer and trans kids who live there. So, all April, we are raising money for Equality Florida, matching your donations and offering some very cool prizes, physical and virtual. From thanks on the show to a bonus episode on the subject of your choice. For more information and to find out how to participate, check out explainthexmen.com slash equality. Meanwhile, on to the show. I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 368 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Generation X, and some glorious Chris Pacello art, and also some pretty good some other person art. I feel like Chris Pacello doing a Halloween issue of Generation X is some kind of confluence of perfection. I think it kind of is, yeah. Uh, The issue that we're covering to start, Gen X number 22, actually came out around Halloween, so appropriate topic, but yeah, Pacello just gets to A, draw cool monsters, and B, draw people in all sorts of different improbable costumes, thus satisfying his urge to just have the most engaging crowd scenes uh, this side of Larry Stroman. I'm thinking more about his margin beasties. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to those. We've talked about how Chris Pacello just loves drawing random stuff in comics that's not necessarily directly related to the issue in question. And, uh, yeah, we get a lot of that with this one. But before we dive into what happens in this issue, let's talk a little bit about Gen X in general. So Generation X is the youngest X team, the heirs apparent to the New Mutants. The X-Mansion in Westchester is pretty full, what with the X-Men and X-Force both hogging all the bathrooms all the time, so Gen X is actually based out of the new Xavier School. The new Xavier School is located at what used to be the Massachusetts Academy. It's the school run by Emma Frost, former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, who's currently co-headmistress, along with co-headmaster Banshee, former X-Men and current middle-aged heartthrob, of the new Xavier School. Generation X had been through a great deal of onslaught nonsense, so it's time for a break. I mean, okay, we know they just had one, but that break had a fear lord appear in a salad, so time for another. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell and Michael Wright, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Al Fay and Scott Hanna, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This is, this is a cute issue. I think it's more fun than good, but that's absolutely fine for what it is. It's not, it's not particularly momentous. There's very little to miss if you're reading for the big story. But again, it's, it's fun. It's light. And this is something we've seen a lot of in Generation X, especially in the last Gen X stuff that we covered, that sort of cookout in the Danger Grotto issue. It's slow, yes, but that's not, that's not a bad thing. And while that issue felt like a glorious, long summer day, this issue is 
Halloween. This issue specifically is the fun kind of Halloween. The kind of Halloween where you're a kid and everything is clearly very spooky and you know what's going on but the adults don't really and you feel kind of special and powerful but also delightfully creeped out all the time. Is it the kind of Halloween where Uncle Sam knocks you out of a tree? Uh, no, no, no. That's a different Halloween story that we just covered. God, I still can't believe that happened. This issue reminds me a little bit. Do you remember the uh, video games by Double Fine Costume Quest? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's got that kind of like childhood Halloween magic to it. I love that. So there are three storylines um, here that are, are all kind of intermingled. Uh, one is trick-or-treating in Rutland, Vermont. There's also some stuff going on with the kids at school. And finally, the, the I guess, climax to what extent it is one of, of the Emma versus Nightmare plotline that we saw teased in Generation X number 20. So we'll start in Rutland. We've got the young kids, Artie, Leach, and Franklin, who are trick-or-treating at the Halloween festival, champ- chaperoned by Banshee and Husk. I am so glad to be back in Rutland, Vermont. Like, that thing with Junction and the Juggernaut story and that one annual seemed like such a tease. Rutland, of course, is the real-life town that has a famous Halloween festival that a bunch of comic stories have been set in. And, well, here's another. We're going to have to go some year. We're going to have to just, you know, explain Con and Rutland. I mean, that, that actually sounds kind of amazing. Like, let, let's figure this out. Anyway, this is the one night that... Especially Artie and Leech, who are normally pink and green, get to just be themselves without worry in public. Um, it's very cute. Paige and Banshee have a brief heart-to-heart about Teresa, and Paige helps Franklin come to terms with missing his parents, and it's it's generally just kind of charming. Yeah, I I really like Husk and Banshee as a student-teacher pairing, and I like that that's part of how they bond that Husk talks to Banshee about Teresa, Siren, the daughter he didn't really get to raise because, well, he didn't know she existed. Him being in charge of Generation X, in a way, this is his first chance at some odd version of parenting. And I also like that Paige, who lost her dad, remember, the Guthrie dad died in uh, New Mutants Special Edition, number one, like the the first New Mutants story, uh, or New Mutants graphic novel, I should say. And, uh... We've talked a lot about how Cannonball reacted to that. We're finally reminded, oh yeah, Husk must have too. And now she can use that to bond with Franklin that just lost his parents because of a big Magneto Gundam guy. I also just realized something that has never come up before and that we should have noticed years ago, which is that Leech's powers don't seem to work on Artie. You know, I feel like they did at least briefly in the Mutant Massacre— But, yeah, here they don't seem to. I mean, we know Leech has been practicing, so maybe that's part of it. But my take is that we know that certain mutant powers don't work on siblings. We've seen that with Cyclops and Havoc and the various other Summers brothers. There have been a couple other examples. And, I mean, let's be real. These Moppets, these pink and green Moppets, Artie and Leech, they're basically family. So maybe they just can't use their powers on each other anymore. Although I guess that would make it awkward if Leech couldn't see Artie's, like, pictogram things. But that's not a direct power use. So I'm just going to say it's fine and they're adorable and I love them. Now, the real point of this story, though, are the delightful Bacello monsters running around in the margins. They are so good. Oh, they're great. And even for Bacello, they are 
out there. They are like so over the top, monstrous and cartoonish. They actually remind me a lot of that old Rat Fink art, you know, of like the hot rods and the giant monstery animal people driving them, and everybody had big jagged teeth and giant mouths and tattoos and stuff. Yeah, it tells this story in the margins of these monsters basically having this violent but cartoonish to the point where it's not worrisome war. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, it reminds me of the cricket backup strips. Okay, I'm pretty sure that violent monster war would not have been suitable for publication in Cricket Magazine. No, but 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 in 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 spirit. What would be a magazine that was like Cricket but could have stuff like that? Like, would it would it have a different insect name? I, I don't know, man. What's the most metal insect? Oh, the most heavy metal insect? I mean, stag beetles, I think, are pretty heavy metal. Look at the Stag beetle horns. sounds like it would be a porn magazine. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess it could be both. I don't really know if that's what we're going for. Well, anyway, the point is, uh, this is cool and gross and should not be in a children's magazine. So, back at the school, Chamber, Skin, M, and Jubilee team up to scare off some would-be vandals. I mean, they each have their own role in this plan to scare these teenage jerks away. My favorite, though, is that Chamber just basically flares his powers and puts a skull over his face, and so he looks like spooky Halloween Ghost Rider, and the sound effect as he flares his powers is F-THOOM! And I, now I just want to see Chris Bichello draw Ghost Rider. I just want to see the Ghost Rider movie again. You know, I still haven't seen that. I really need to get around to that. It's amazing, Miles. You know, Nicolas Cage is many things, but boring is never one of them. I was talking to someone on Twitter this week, and and the the possibility of him playing, um, you know, various X characters came up, and and they initially suggested Corsair, which was a pretty great idea, but um, then we realized, what if uh, Nicolas Cage is Mister Sinister? Yeah, you know, Sinister is a character that, depending on how he is written and drawn, can either be genuinely terrifying and intimidating, or goofy as shit. And Cage has that range. He does. I feel like he's weird enough to, like, make that role work, too. Because that's the thing. Like, people talk about how the version of Sinister we see now that's all goofy and vampy has nothing to do with the original. What they both have in common, though, is that they are both so intensely dramatic. Yeah, the original was pretty goofy and vampy. Yeah, he was just, you know, genuinely scary. It's still pretty scary. Yeah, I guess it's more of a mojo kind of scary rather than a, uh, I don't know, a threat of violence at all times kind of scary. I mean, he does a lot of casual murder, Miles. That's true. God damn it, Essex. A lot of machinating. Mmm, machinating. That's a good word. So the third plot line in this issue is Emma versus Nightmare, and this one is frankly somewhat incoherent. Well, it started out pretty coherent in that summary issue. Right, um, Emma had seen Nightmare once before he manifested in her salad back in Generation X number 20. Basically showed up, said he'd be back, and vanished. Like you do? Yeah, Nightmare's presence in here doesn't really amount to much, but I have to say, it is worth it to me to see Chris Pacello draw Nightmare. Nightmare in this is like this sort of domovoy gargoyle with his gray skin and long nose and fingers and features and his dramatic angles and the tattered fabric of his cloak and how he's just always in dramatic shadow and seemingly very aware of it. Like, it's almost like he's Fear Lord voguing the whole time. 
Yeah, yeah. He's. I mean, that that's sort of his thing. He's a very performative villain. But even more so here. And here he's, well, he's he's a little silly. Right. Um. He says he needs Emma's help, and it turns out he's mostly trying to make sure some unnamed nemesis of his can't use Emma to sneak into the nightmare realm and unseat him. Um, Miles, actually, you did some research on the background for this. For me, it came totally out of context, but apparently there was some. Uh, well, yes, that's the thing. It does come out of context in the issue. It's kind of like all the Silver Surfer stuff in that X-Men Spacey story we covered recently. It really could have used a footnote or two. But reading Austin Gorton's Examinations review of this made me realize that there is a Nightmare miniseries that happened about a year before this. It was written by Anne Nascenti and drawn by Joe Bennett. And sure enough, at the end, a new evil character named Neurotica takes over. I'm pretty sure she runs either a new metal band or a symphonic metal band. Um, but here's the important part. Before Neurotica just shows up at the very end out of nowhere... The plot involves Nightmare falling in love with an actress who plays a horror character named Taryn Tula. But more importantly than that, he meets her evil director, Luker Schreckenatter, which is such a good name. And uh, Schreckenatter, his big plot is that he's invented a movie theater chair that lets fear entities into the minds of viewers while they watch movies. I'm pretty sure there was a Vincent Price flick about this. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was that uh, William Castle movie, The Tingler, where, you know, there was this thing and it would get into the back of your head and, and you'd sort of feel it and you had to scream to let it out or it would kill you. And William Castle rigged the chairs in a bunch of movie theaters to, to like, uh, get these mild electric shocks in their headrest into the back of people's heads so that they would think The Tingler was there and then they would scream. This is the same director who created Emerjo, the skeleton that would fly over the audience in The House on Haunted Hill when he played that. Did it actually fly over the audience i thought it just popped out of a trap door and kind of hung out uh it was on a track and so it would kind of move around the theater like in a very regular track-like way but it was the olden days people were cowardly and superstitious i assume seems plausible oh william castle oh william castle jay if william castle was going to direct an x-men story uh which do you think he would direct obviously inferno Oh, man. That's the thing with Inferno. Like, every time somebody asks what should be adapted into a given medium or by a given person, like, the answer is generally Inferno. We've talked about an Inferno rock opera, an Inferno opera opera. Uh, I feel like Inferno could make a great ballet. Inferno could definitely make a great, like, cheesy horror movie. Well, it would—aspects of it are very, very William Castle. I feel like the horror of the inanimate objects coming to life and being evil has, has intense Castle vibes. Oh, it totally does. Okay, so now I'm thinking of, like, an Inferno trilogy or duology, since the Inferno comic storyline has multiple plot lines. And, you know, Castle could do one part, different directors could do different parts, they could be, like, different genres all coming together. Okay, Roger Corman's Inferno. Did Roger Corman and William Castle ever work together? I have no idea. You've seen Corman's Poe adaptations, right? Uh, no, but you've told me a great deal about them. They sound delightful. Uh, they also sound like they're only vaguely related to Poe. They become less and less related to Poe as they progress, culminating with the Raven, um, whose commonalities with the poem it's nominally based on are limited to, there is a Raven in it, and someone is named Lenore. I mean, close enough, I say. Anyway, Emma assures Nightmare that his fears that, that someone will use her to break into his realm are unfounded as her powers don't work like that, 
And he's like, okay, that's fine, and thanks her by giving her a brief nightmare that he claims is a taste of things to come, which would be more portentous if it weren't just the Generation kids screaming and a broken window. So I think this is referring to the upcoming Generation X number 25, where indeed everything does go to hell on multiple fronts. Like, you can kind of see Bastion uh, in the bottom left grabbing Jubilee, like holding her mouth so she can't scream. I'm pretty sure that's him based on the outfit. And there's a guy up in the top right that I think is Black Tom, just based on the fact that he's very near a creepy-looking Mondo. But that's the thing, like, Bocello's art is so cool-looking, but especially when it's not colored, and this is all just one color as being part of a nightmare, it can be kind of hard to tell who anybody is or what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah. And this this is, this is, it's cool-looking, and it's got the structural incoherence of an actual nightmare, but again, that makes it much more difficult to follow as a reader. Yeah. Well, let's pivot to an entirely different creative team in Generation X Annual 1996, Everyday People. This issue is written by Michael Golden, with art by Jeff Johnson and Dan Panosian, colors by Cabrera, Lazzolari, and GCW, and letters, of course, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So... You may be familiar with the name Michael Golden. He's actually mostly known as an artist. He had very long runs on Micronauts and The Nom. Yes, there was a long-running Marvel comic just based on the Vietnam War. But he was also the artist who co-created Rogue and Bucky O'Hare. Bucky, Captain Bucky O'Hare, Mutants, Aliens, and Toads Beware. If you're looking for adventure, this is it with something, 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 and Willie DeWitt. That Saturday morning theme song has been imperfectly lodged in my head for, like, decades I love that there was an era where they just made Saturday morning cartoons out of literally everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, freaking Little Shop of Horrors, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Back to the Future, Where's Waldo? Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. That's in my head forever as well. Like, it was, it was, the, it, I, children of the, the teens, you gotta understand, this was, this was like a whole thing when, if, if anything came out that was an all-successful entertainment property, no matter what age group it was for, no matter the genre, there would be a Saturday morning cartoon spinoff in, like, the 80s or 90s. Yeah, and they would change whatever they needed to to make it more palatable for a young audience. So, like, Beetlejuice was a lovable scamp in the Beetlejuice cartoon. Audrey 2, the killer plant, was, like, the buddy of young Seymour in the Little Shop of Horrors cartoon. Man, Audrey 2 is nobody's friend. It's true. Anyway, so Michael Golden, I also remember that he is the artist who drew an old, I think, Kristar cover. That was one of the many action figure tie-ins that Marvel did, which had a really cool skull on it that Danzig ended up swiping for his logo for his band. Okay. Yep. Anyway, as for Jeff Johnson, he drew a big chunk of Wonder Man, and he did the Ultraverse title Solitaire that I know nothing about. We'll talk more about his style as we go, but I like it. It is very different from Bocello, and it fits this story very well. Yeah, it's it's a significant departure from sort of what I think of as Marvel's house styles and the ways they were leaning in of the age to an extent that feels a little bit dated in a really nice way. Yeah, like it feels like kind of the cool part of the 90s. It feels... It feels very vertigo. This whole story feels very vertigo. Feels very vertigo, but there's also, like, there's there's a dash of Archie in there. You know, you're not wrong. Uh, but let's start 
where anyone would start with the cover, which is a gatefold cover showing Generation X getting slammed with this energy waveform thing from this giant neon green wolf head. Uh, That'll kind of make sense. The villain is sort of wolf-themed. But what I really love is that Husk in the front, her skin is ripping off. You know, that's her power. Her skin rips off and stuff is underneath different materials. And that reveals this layer of knotted, gnarled wood underneath, complete with splintering hair and an eye that looks three-dimensionally carved out of wood. And then in the part of her body that's closest to the screaming energy green wolf thing, uh, that wood is flaking away to reveal cracking stone. It's actually one of the best depictions of Husk's powers that I've ever seen. It's also a really good example of a cover that stands entirely on its own as an illustration and refers directly but not literally to the contents of the issue oh totally Uh, except for the part on the far left which would have been the back cover which is two characters who aren't even in the issue emma frost and chamber like emma is standing creepily behind chamber with her hands on his shoulders and he's partially restrained by like the thorny branches of a rose bush and i have no idea what's happening maybe that's what they were up to during this issue they were just like i don't know being part of some kind of installation art having terrible gardening accidents Oh, man, that must have been a weird accident to get them into a situation like that. They don't really seem too concerned about it. I guess they're both pretty, uh, you know, stoic. Anyway, this issue is multiple intertwining, like a rosebush, I guess, stories. There's Generation X in New York City. But there are also these three random non-mutant characters, just humans, just folks. And the framing device that links them all together is a news report which is showing the recent finale of Onslaught, the X-Men's battle with Onslaught at the very end of it. And the issue cuts back and forth between the different threads. Sometimes it links them together with that news report on TV in the background of all of them, which really goes out of its way to emphasize the difference between super folks as the world sees them and just, quote, everyday people. But another device that I really enjoy is that sometimes a character in one scene will start a sentence at the end of a page, and then one of the other characters in one of the other scenes will say something that could kind of sort of finish that sentence. Oh, that's, it's, on one hand, it's kind of a cheap trick. On the other hand, I never stop loving it. Oh, for real. And that's the thing. This issue, it's called Everyday People, and it's really what it's focusing on. You know, it's, it's focusing on, like, the way people see superheroes, the way these characters, Generation X, actually are, or, you know, even Banshee, even their headmaster. And comparing that to the struggles of just your average person going through their average day. And so linking it all together like that, having that continual flow, really reinforces the theme. It's great. Interestingly, these three humans that are part of the story, none of them ever get names, which I also kind of like. It really just reinforces that theme of universality. Um, They are all kind of conventionally attractive white folks, but, you know, it still it works very, very well. They're normal enough to feel at least like that's their role relative to the story. Yeah. I actually always really liked how the how those heroes indirectly affecting the people around them go. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the much-beloved episode Blink and the much-less-beloved episode Love and Monsters from Doctor Who, both of which I think did a good job at that. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess, I guess let's start with the Generation X part. Like I said, the whole point of this issue is the way it intertwines, but that would be utterly incoherent in a podcast, so we'll see if we can make it work. Gen X are very much teenagers in this issue. That's, again, kind of the point. And Banshee is very much the adult who is stuck in a traffic jam with 
six teenagers in a van. The first panel that shows all of them, I love the way Johnson draws his face. It is just pure exasperation. Like, it's very much the I'm not even supposed to be here look from Clerks. Actually, he kind of is drawn to look like Dante from Clerks, weirdly. Really? I don't see it. I don't know. I I guess maybe. Maybe it's just a heavyset guy with a goatee look who's, you know, sad about what's going on. I'm not sure. Yeah. As Banshee complains... Rich man, poor man, cop and crook. A lifetime of experience to qualify to be a glorified chauffeur and chaperone to a lorry full of teenagers. The worst possible fate. Actually, no, the worst possible fate is having to drive in New York City, so. For real? I've been there a number of times. I've never had the displeasure of driving, but it looks terrible. Yeah, I just, I refuse to. Legit. And every member of Gen X is being very much a teenager of a different flavor. Husk is pining to herself over her weird, confusing crush on Chamber. Skin, wearing headphones, is playing air guitar and loudly singing along to his music. Jubilee, I think my favorite, is telling this endless, discursive, meandering joke about an elephant with literally, in the speech bubbles, no spaces between words and only punctuation and italic switches separating the words to make it even vaguely readable— Richard Starkings does a great job of making this coherent while also getting across how painful it is for everyone around her. And Monet is staring out of the window before snapping at Jubilee. Sink is just as frustrated as Banshee with all of this, but he doesn't have driving to distract him, and says, This is hell, and someone forgot to tell me I died. If I had to pick a least defined member of Gen X, it might actually be Sink, and I kind of like this version of him. I kind of like the... I am the civilized grown-up among these teenagers, and goddammit, what are these kids thinking version of Sink. It's fun. He's kind of the normal one. Yeah, I very much so. Mondo is politely and enthusiastically talking to Banshee constantly about how the radio and the city and everything, it's all just so cosmopolitan and varied, and he's so excited to be able to experience it all. I really like this version of Mondo, this sort of innocent, endlessly positive version of the character, and it makes me sad that he's going to be revealed very shortly to not be real. Yeah, I feel like writers kind of forgot that for a fairly long time. The colorist also forgot that his skin should be pretty dark. He's very white in this issue. Oh yeah, that's true. But yeah, all of these kids, it feels very New Mutants in the sense that they feel like realistic teenagers, but it also feels very distinct from New Mutants because, remember... Those kids bonded quickly. They were a smaller team. They were pulled together by trauma almost instantly. And their mentor turned out to be a scary space alien very early on. Generation X doesn't have that. They're starting to become friends, certainly. But they really don't have that family vibe. And I appreciate that the book doesn't try to give that to them. It doesn't try to make this just the new New Mutants. Now, Generation X or someone driving near them because they're caught in traffic, are being tailed by some kind of mysterious spy types. They don't realize it, though, and Banshee finally hits his limit. Um, and he, he says, you know what, screw it. We're all getting out and walking. Um, skin, take the keys. You get to park. A, a decision he almost immediately regrets once he hears... Squealing tires, but no screaming voices or the crunch of impacting metal. Just keep hoping for the best here, Sean... And the dynamics previously established continue, particularly Jubilee and Monet's bickering, um, as Jubilee just gets more and more and more in her face and more and more overwhelming. There's a point at which her, her bubble is just a window into pure spaceless text. 
Yeah, like the borders of the window are just cutting off words, making it very clear that her dialogue extends far beyond the margins of that speech bubble. It's just, again, a brilliant little lettering trick. So that's Gen X. Let's talk about the everyday people who are in this issue. Like I said, they don't have names, so I decided to just enjoy alliteration and uh, call them Goatee Guy, Late Lady, and Execrable Executive. So let's start with Goatee Guy. What's his deal, Jay? Well, his girlfriend has dumped him, at least he claims, out of nowhere. He feels like he has nothing left, and he decides he's going to jump in front of a subway train. Yeah, this guy feels helpless against life's events, kind of like the issue plays up. The way humans feel helpless in the face of these godlike beings like the X-Men and Onslaught battling all around them, unaware of the destruction that they're causing. And on the news, one of the anchors wonders if anyone's paying attention to the problems that normal people are experiencing. Like, it's not subtle, but that's not the point of this issue. It's almost a an elevated look at the ordinary problems and traits that kind of bring us all together. I guess you could accuse it of being ham-fisted, but for me, it works. I don't know. I think if it were a longer thing, if it weren't an annual you know, if it were something that lasted for more than one issue, or if the characters played a more significant role in the plot, it would feel ham-fisted. But one of the things I really enjoy is that these characters don't actually intersect very much with what's going on in Generation X. They're just sort of this pa- playing out parallel stories. Yeah, there's some mild overlap. There's some indirect relationships between events, but that's about it. And that also reinforces the theme. Everything affects everything. Everybody affects everybody. So then we have Late Lady. She stayed out too late last night drinking. She forgot to pay her rent. She's running really late for work. And the television, again, reinforces all of this, saying about mutants. Are they ordinary people with different problems? Or are they the next step in evolution? The step that leaves Homo sapiens behind? Pretty clear the argument that the issue is making of those two options. So, Late Lady and Goatee Guy actually meet up at the train station, randomly. And the train's been cancelled due to signal problems. We'll get to that. That is one of the excuses they give for cancelling trains. And and the extent to which the, the reasons, the stock reasons given for, for cancelling or delayed trains actually correspond to the reasons for them varies. So, for example, an ill passenger usually means someone drunk, etc. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh... Now I'm kind of wondering what other sorts of euphemisms they could use. This train has been delayed due to ennui. Long before I moved here, apparently a whole bunch of trains were stopped for about three hours because of kittens on the tracks. Oh, well, I'm really glad they stopped. Right? Oh, kittens. Anyway, this train is the one that Goatee Guy was planning to jump in front of. It's also the one that Late Lady was hoping to catch if she could possibly make it to work on time and keep her job and not have her life continue to fall apart. And so the two characters just sort of meet up and start to bond a little over just how hard it is to get by day to day, about how annoying these small problems in life can be. And he offers to, when she does get to work back her up uh, in terms of her story so that, you know, maybe she won't get fired to say, yeah, the train really was delayed. She's not making that up. I mean, after all, he's got nowhere to be. He wasn't planning to be anywhere. If you were a boss, would you find it like, would that be a pro or a con having, having one of your employees like bring a random stranger into work to be like, yes, the train was canceled. 
I guess it kind of depends on how authoritative we think that goatee is. What's your take? I don't think it's a very authoritative goatee. I mean, I feel like this is a backroom of the game shop goatee. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, This is the kind of goatee that, like, I strived and still failed to have in college, and I was not aiming high. It's, it's It's not a bad goatee, but it's not a goatee that carries any inherent, like, threat or authority. Mm, exactly. Well, let's go to, speaking of authority, the third of our everyday people, the execrable executive. That's a hard word to say. He is clearly in the process of committing or finishing committing some kind of white-collar crime. And he's preparing to skip town on his wife and kids so he can go off with his secretary that he's been having an affair with. And Johnson does such a great job drawing his smug asshole face. Like, you immediately hate this guy even before you get to the dialogue. It's wonderful. Oh, damn, yeah, it is such a punchable face. It totally is. Uh, He's introduced alongside news footage discussing the Sentinels, with the anchors talking about whether the Sentinels are part of a functional governmental system, a necessary evil, or if they're actually a dangerous problem that's just making everything worse. Like executives! That might be a bit of a stretch. Well, okay, fine, they tend not to shoot lasers out of their chest at mutants. Turns out, though, this guy's wife actually knows exactly what he's up to, and when she calls and he starts to give excuses, interrupts him and says, nope, I want a divorce. Good for her. Good for her. But you know who's even worse than that executive? Who's that? Fenris. Oh, right. Fenris. They're jerks and Nazis. I mean, Nazis are inherently jerks, but they're like extra jerks. They're, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to put this. I mean, I, again, like all the things I could say about them are kind of redundant to Nazis, but like they're evil and they're obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, that's having both of those qualities does make you even worse. And they, it turns out, are part of this big plot that involves cars tailing each other throughout the city. They are also in the garage where Skin and Sink are attempting to park. And where the uh, execrable executive is attempting to leave, you know, skip town with his car. Hey, Darth Vader, you want to move the junk so us everyday people can get on with real life? Now, Fenris is here to steal a thing, but Skin and Sink jump them in the garage. Not very effectively. Um, they're, they're almost immediately taken hostage, as is Banshee when he comes to their aid. I like that Fenris thinks that Banshee and Gen X are here to steal the thing that they want to steal, but in fact, it's just terrible luck that Gen X has even showed up here in the first place. Like, again, it's one of those everyday people stumbling into problems they wanted nothing to do with kind of situations. As for what the thing is, it is a mutagen wave generator, which really sounds like something out of Ninja Turtles. Well, it's basically the the thing that um, Magneto sets up in the first X-Men movie. Uh, yeah, initially it's designed to just cure all disease, but apparently the Big Pharma company canceled it because there's no healthcare profit if there's no disease. Um, but yeah, you're right, because what it does is it makes everybody mutate. And then kills them. Yes, it turns Senator Kelly into goo, basically, thus prompting the Senator Kelly is made of goo horrifying action figure that for some reason was actually made. Possibly the worst movie tie-in of all time. And that's saying something, because some of those fast food movie tie-ins can be pretty iffy, but not iffier than Guy Made of Slime, Senator Kelly. Oh god, it's so upsetting. Um, You have to actually, like, touch one to fully understand the horror of this thing. 
Right, yeah, because the texture is not okay. And listeners, we can confirm that that texture years and years after that movie came out and thus after the action figure came out is worse. Yeah, yeah, it's slightly sticky and it's full of like some kind of goo and plastic beads. And it's it's um it's a really distressing toy. It's like if Stretch Armstrong was a disease. It's not, though, because it's not even very stretchy. Oh, a non-stretchy disease, but still a gross one. God, it's it's so awful. Well, that just really underscores how evil Fenris is because they're trying to do that to people. It's also got clearly defined nipples, which somehow just makes it exponentially worse. Oh, Senator Nipples. Senator Nipples. Maybe that's what his wife calls him, or at least called him before she was killed in some brood story. Well, now we know why she died. Because of Senator Nipples and his terrible action figure. And he blamed mutants. <laughs> Should have looked in a mirror and then recoiled because blah. So the other thing that this mutation wave generator does, aside from nipple stuff or wherever we were, is that if it hits actual mutants, then it makes their powers go out of control and thus cause a lot of damage. Kind of like the legacy virus when it kills some mutants. Well, and it does kill them also. It's not just that their powers go out of control. It's that their powers go out of control and they die. Yeah, it's, it's not great is the point. So um, they turn this thing on and the hero's powers do in fact go out of control. It's very impressive. But one of the heroes in question is Sync. And Sync, it syncs with people's powers and he is standing near Fenris. And remember, part of Fenris's deal is that when they're in physical contact, usually by touching or holding hands, they can do great bl- big destructive blasts, as dramatized in a slightly iffy fashion in the better-than-you-think-it-is TV show The Gifted. Which also goes way, way, way out of its way to avoid acknowledging and thus somehow makes even more obvious that the hand-holding is an incest metaphor. Yeah, that's that's definitely a thing with Fenris in the comics. But for real listeners, if you haven't seen The Gifted, I'm not going to say it's a good television show, but it's actually kind of a genuinely good X-Men show, and it has a really good Polaris in it. Yeah, it's Polaris is much, much better than the show as a whole. Um, it also stars a guy whose name I cannot for the life of me remember, because when we were watching the first episode, T told me that that actor plays a character named Vampire Bill on True Blood, and that just wiped out any potential of me to ever think of him as anything else. Huh, multiple True Blood X-Men uh, connections. I mean, Anna Paquin's in True Blood, and she was rogue. Yeah, but does she play a character named Vampire Bill? I don't know, I haven't seen True Blood. Vampire Bill. I, I love the prosaicness of that. It's like I learned the other night um, from T, who, who knows a lot about pirates, that, that at one point um, someone took over a ship whose name was just Robert. Robert the ship. Robert the ship. Oh, I like that not only did they give it a person's name, they gave it like a really common person's name. Yes, the Robert. Oh, maybe they were trying to say robber because that's like a crime thing and they no. fucked it up. No, it wasn't a pirate ship. It was a ship that, that somewhere there. I think Steed Bonnet, but I'm not sure. Um, I need to go back and look. Uh, oh, yes. No, T actually just texted me from the other room to say that it was Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet working together. Well done, Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet. Speaking of which, um, I'm, I'm just going to tangent again because Fenris is, Fenris is terrible, but they're also boring. Um, are, are you watching Our, Our Flag Means Death? Uh, yes, yes. Anna and I just watched the first episode a couple nights ago, and it's delightful. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so good. The first context in which I learned about that show was multiple friends showing me pictures of Taika Waititi's Blackbeard and saying that I needed to cosplay him. And I guess they're not wrong. 
That costume looks really uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's cosplay. Cosplay seems inherently uncomfortable. I mean, not fundamentally. As 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 someone who has cosplayed and and has organized costumes around just wearing things made out of street, embellished street clothes fairly consistently, yeah, all my costumes have pockets. That's that's not a bad plan. I'm just happy that there's a fictional character who I could maybe cosplay that people would recognize that has long hair and a beard. <sighs> you really got to watch Gallivant. I do. That's also on my list. Oh, there are so many things, Jay. So many things. Be back on Hulu. Oh, convenient. Anyway, Fenris. Right, Fenris. So they're doing great. They're wearing, like, anti-that machine armor, so they're fine. But yes, Sink, as you mentioned, is near Fenris, and so when he presses his left hand against his right hand, it's the equivalent of them holding hands, and everything explodes, including them. And including the machine. Yes. And as the explosion hits, Late Lady and Goatee Guy arrive at the office to deliver her substantiated excuse, but the office is being cleared out, because apparently since Execrable Boss was arrested for embezzlement, he was turned in by his secretary girlfriend that he was planning on running away with, which is delightful, um, the department is shutting down for a while, but when it opens back up, all the employees are going to get transferred upstairs to a different department, and their jobs will be better, and they'll have raises. So that's great, and Late Lady and Goatee Guy plan a date, and Goatee Guy is not going to jump in front of a train, and so that's great. Yay them, boo shitty boss. It works out for everyone basically as it should. Yes. What's not ideal is that the issue ends with more more news media. This is Graydon Creed, the anti-mutant presidential candidate, going on a rant about protecting everyday people from the mutant agenda. And it seems pretty ironic after everything we've seen, after all of these parallels that have been continually drawn, just showing that, hey, mutants is just folks, folks is just folks. Except for Fenris. Except for Fenris and that crappy executive. The three of them could go to hell. So this issue, I I loved it, and it's really hard to articulate why. Like, not a ton happens. The metaphor is very heavy-handed and not always executed very deftly, but I just really enjoyed it. Like, I read it multiple times voluntarily, which is something I seldom do for the podcast, at least not right in a row. I really enjoyed it, too, and I likewise have trouble articulating why. I, I keep on, It's very human feeling, and I'm not sure what I mean by that, but it's, it is a good thing. I think part of it is that the issue really only has judgment against the people who are genuinely malicious and self-centered. Like, everyone else is flawed. Like, literally every character in this, Generation X, Banshee, these ordinary people, they're all very flawed. And yet the issue seems very concerned with their well-being and seems to take their problem seriously. It's both fun and kind. That's a good way of putting it. It's both fun and kind. Yeah, so well done, this random 1996 annual that we've, we'd never heard of before. Uh, listeners, if you have a chance, check it out. It's unfortunately not on Marvel Unlimited, so that's a little harder, but, well, it's out there. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what is your favorite visual interpretation of Beast? Although I recognize that this form makes zero objective sense, I definitely have a soft spot for Cat Beast. Yeah, yeah, the cat beast who looks kind of like Ron Perlman's beast from that old Beauty and the Beast TV show that always confused me when I was young. But blue. But blue. Speaking of Ron Perlman, I really enjoy his poetic vitriol currently leveled against Ron DeSantis. Well done, Ron Perlman. His politics are in the right place, and he is full of anger and charm. Definitely the superior Ron. God, he really is. 
So, yeah, Cat Beast, I agree. Purely visually speaking, it's probably the best Beast look, as much as I have a soft spot for the classic Wolverine hair one. But I will say that the current version of Beast, where he's a little bit ape-like and kind of bald, that actually has a, a nice sinister quality to it. Not capital S sinister, lowercase s. Uh, that works really well for Beast's more modern moral iffiness, you know, running X-Force, having messed with the time stream, being very much an ends-justify-the-means kind of guy. Like, it works really well. And I know that wasn't the initial intent necessarily during Bendis' run when it first appeared, but uh, something about that match I really dig. I also love the demonic Beast with the big curly horns from the Battle of the Atom alternate future, but that's more of like a special alt-universe occasion look than a day-to-day look. Although it's also somewhat closer to the form that the time-displaced beast end up t- ended up taking for a while while he was learning demon sorcery. Uh, true, yeah. That was a really fun part of when the X-Men from the 60s were teenagers in the present day. Like, seeing them make decisions that led them in kind of different directions that we'd seen foreshadowed sometimes in alternate timelines and stuff like that. You know, there were some complaints about the time-displaced 60s X-Men, and I know they're they're gone now, they're back in the 60s, but... There were some really good stories around them between Bendis and Hopeless's runs. Yeah, agreed. So Scott emailed to answer some questions that had come up in a recent episode. And here's what he had to say. One, the former wrestler who played the live-action Mario on the Super Mario Bros. Super Show is Captain Lou Albano, and he did, in fact, use rubber bands to control his wild beard hair. Maybe Miles ought to give that a try. Right, yes, and now I remember... That music video he was in, he played Cindy Lauper's dad in her music video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and it was great. As far as the beard thing, you know, when my beard was, like, dwarf-style long, back in the day I grew it out real big before the first Hobbit movie came out, before we knew that the first Hobbit movie was perhaps less good than we were hoping in some ways. Um, But yeah, I could even braid it sometimes. I remember one time you actually got it to braid into five little tiny braids. It was very impressive. I'm highly dexterous. You are highly dexterous. Um, so Scott also let us know that the Comicraft letterer listed as AD in some of the books is almost certainly Albert DeShane, whose full name you'll sometimes see when editorial decides not to abbreviate. Okay, sort of like how Colia Fuchs is often listed as KF, but Marvel editorial from the 90s, what? I mean, if you have a name as cool as Albert DeShane or Colia Fuchs, why would you abbreviate that? Throw that in there. They're going to class up the page their names are written on. Absolutely. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Uh, Today, the mic goes to someone who is both. That is Nightmare. Tremble, sleepers. Quake with fear and sweat your unease. For this night, Nightmare settles like a heavy fog upon your unquiet minds. Beware my whispers and huh, huh jeez, it's, it's it's dark in here. Are those are those blackout curtains, Tom Burke? Can't you just open them just a little? My influence seeps like liquid shadow across the floor, but I am not getting near that ambiguous shape under your bed. Can I can I take like a big jump from where I am to your bed and then get under the covers with you? It it, it seems safe under there. But, <clears throat> but, tis children upon whose midnight terrors I most eagerly sup. 
Addie and Betty, so young, their innocence making their fear all the more. Gah! What? What is that over there? Just, just stuffed animals? Are you sure? Those eyes look so creepy. I, children, could you read me a bedtime story? Maybe dragons love tacos? That should calm me, I mean, you down. That's right, nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of aside from me. Nightmare, the Fear Lord. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn, and be sure to click over to explainthexmen.com slash equality to find out how to help us support Equality Florida. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, because it really helps. Next week, we'll be checking in with Wolverine. And the progress of Havoc's ill-advised supervillain career. Where were we? I don't know. But I was about to say, when I think about you, I touch my horrible Senator Kelly action figure. <laughs> Which I and, and, and then thought better of it, so I, I didn't. Ah, fair, fair. <laughs> we're professionals. <sighs> no, but for real, where were we? I, I don't even remember anymore. Something about Fenris.